Good morning. We're going to go ahead and get started. Warm welcome to our adult forum. We're kicking off uh, today a series of adult forums looking at traditions around Christmas as we embrace this Advent season. Part of it is preparation for Christmas. And so we're getting started um, talking about what preparation for Christmas is. This year, while we were in the Holy Land, uh, Ellis and I picked up, on behalf of the Altar Guild, a new nativity set. So we put it out early. It's on the table in the entryway. Uh, make sure you get a chance to look at it. Uh, the nativity set is carved of Bethlehem olive wood, and it was carved in Bethlehem by Palestinian Christian residents of Bethlehem. Bethlehem today is still the Palestinian city with the highest percentage of Christians living in it. And so we decided as a church we needed a new set and what better way to, uh, to celebrate by, than by uh, helping to support local artists in the town of Jesus' birth. But as we were talking about getting ready for Advent, we knew we wanted to invite back Dr. Adam Ployd uh, Adam is professor of church history at Eden Theological Seminary. Uh, he's been here a few times. He's been a regular guest at Theology on Tap. Uh, last year, his forum looking at Advent and Christmas was one of the most popular of our adult forums, and so we knew we wanted to invite Adam back. And as Adam and I were talking, I told him about this nativity set, and he thought, well, why don't we take a look at the theology of the nativity? And I thought that was a really, really great idea. So... If you will, help me welcome Adam Ployd to talk about the theology of the nativity. Good morning. It is very exciting to be here. I always enjoy coming back to this space. We welcome with open arms and most importantly, open breakfast. That makes everything better. Today what I want to talk about, well first, how many of you have a nativity scene in your home? Pretty good. How many of you have more than one? More than five? More than ten? Okay, that's pretty good. When I was growing up, and actually still now, my mother collected nativity scenes, and I thought it was weird that she had, like, six. That just seemed a bit excessive. I worked with someone at Eden, Dr. Clint McCann, brilliant scholar, obsessive individual, who has over 200 individual nativity scenes in his house. He sets them up every year. Uh, I am disappointed that he has not uh, actually calculated the number of individual pieces he has, <laughs> but we get the idea. I was thinking about what it is we like about nativity scenes. I think for one thing they began to develop as a way to uh, at least in the modern period, push against kind of the commercialization of Christmas and say, well, in the midst of Santa, in the midst of uh, bargain sales, in the midst of all of this, let's have something that keeps us focused on the religious Christian origins of the holiday. What I want to do today is talk about some of the deeper significance that we might find in contemplating nativity scenes, ours or our neighbors. And I want to do it in conversation with the early Christian theologians, folks in, say, the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries, and see how they reflected 
on the story of Christ's birth, particularly the story in Luke, which is where we get much of the nativity scene from. But to get us started, I wanted to start with a modern-day expert, the not-so-reverend Hannah Gatsby. And hopefully it will work. But it might not. Play. Where's the play button? Oh, you jerk, Hannah. Yeah, I might be able to. Oh, that looked like something. Anyhow, this was going to be beautiful to go from YouTube to this, but or go from this to YouTube. But we'll do it the old-fashioned way and go to YouTube. No internet. <laughs> that it's it's gone. Uh, no, it's just gone. Yeah, I can't even see the internet. That's okay. We're just going to work with this and do what we can. Hey, there it is. But there's still no internet. We found the internet worked really well up until about right here. And at this point, we just said, I'm done. So that's okay. Imagine, if you will, that you have been delighted, entertained, and informed by a very funny Australian woman. Okay? So you've got that in your head, and now we're moving on. One thing I was going to do during the Hannah Gatsby video, while we were all laughing and distracted by humor and good things, was to hand this out. Oh, my looks like he's going to volunteer to do it. Why are you... There we go. Very tentative connection here. So, as that sheet's going round, I will simply highlight that one of the things that Hannah Gatsby highlights in her comedic, comedic look at nativity scenes throughout time is some of the Things that are always shown, like there's always a jackass and, and an ox. And I don't mean uh, Joseph. That Joseph is often asleep or just doing his own thing. That for some reason there's a hole in the roof, and I chose this picture because it looks like one of the angels is falling through the hole, which just makes it even better. And the thing that she hints at, but she doesn't go into it in depth because her point is to just sort of make some fun, is that all of these things have theological meaning. And so I invite you to look at the first quotation on the front of the sheet. One of the things I talked about last year when I talked about the history of Advent and, Christ and Christmas, was that Christmas wasn't really a big deal, at least not as big a deal as Easter, until really into the modern age. But, we have examples of that not being completely true. 
John Chrysostom, a 4th and 5th century preacher from uh, uh, what we would call Istanbul, preached this. A feast day is about to arrive, and it is the most holy and awesome of all feasts. It would be no mistake to call it the chief and mother of all holy days. And what feast day is that? It is the feast of Christ's birth in the flesh. Just as different rivers arise from a single source, these other feasts have their beginning in the birth of Christ. You want to plug that in? We're going to switch in and out. Just put a pin in that quotation. Contemplate it in your heart. So, no, never mind. almost. <laughs> the great thing about Christmas in the modern world is that technology makes everything so much easier, faster, and smoother. So, we can be thankful for that. Ta-da! I love the ox and the ass. I 
I mean, they have such a range of emotions, the ox and the ass. That's what I'm looking for. I don't know that they brought humanity together, but look at their, look at their range. You've got angry, you've got happy, you've got sad, you've got confused, you've got just plain old animal faces. The ox and the ass have, have covered the gamut of emotions. In this one, they're just eating hay and going, do we have bodies? And of course, hay is representing the stable, the barn. You remember that one? No room at the end, love. Get in the barn and have your baby. But it hasn't always been that. Back in the day, it used to be a cave. And then there was an awkward transition where they wanted to depict the barn, but they couldn't quite let go of the cave. So all these artists would just shove a barn in a cave. Look at that one. Get in there, barn. It's a rock. There's also a time when Mary was a bit more of a recliner post-birth. She just kicked back. Look at her there. She's all laid out on a blood sausage, it looks like. It's a map. This nativity is by Andre Rublev. He's considered Russia's greatest medieval painter. Interestingly, in Rublev's nativity, Mary doesn't seem too keen on her new baby Jesse. She's rolled over and just given him the cold shoulder. He's got to hang out with the ox and the ass. Good thing they're friends. Now, he's in a cave, not a crib. That looks like a concrete coffin. And that works much like the crucifix in the bun nursery. It's a spoiler alert. It's there to go, oh, isn't it cute? It's a little baby, it's gonna die. It's kind of like how Easter decorations come out straight after New Year's. Too soon. What is absent also from Conrad's nativity, but it is there in Rublev's, are these two ladies in the front washing a baby. Now that's Christ. Now I know he's also appears there and there, but you know, it's Christ. He can do whatever he wants. Shut up. The midwives were there to wash the baby's rice and also to check that the Virgin Mary was still a virgin. It is central to Christianity that the Virgin Mary is a virgin. Nobody likes women who've had sex. So we can't celebrate the saviour if he comes from a woman who's had sex. She has to be a virgin. Nobody likes a woman who's had sex. Nobody. Nobody. And Joseph is going through all that conflict. You can see it in the front there. He's all, all stupid over there. Just going, oh, what's she done? I don't know what she's done. I didn't poke it. In a lot of nativities, Joseph is asleep or he's nodding off. And that's the Jewish people, not awakening to the idea that the Christ Saviour has been born. And that's why I like this nativity. Look at him, he's busying himself. Because when I'm stressed, I don't have a nap. I just go, oh, a little bit of, bit of toast and marshmallows. That's why I identify with this painting. Although, Joseph, fix the roof, mate. Don't, he's not sitting out there, but I just looked down there as if he was. I can fix a roof, you can fix a roof. You can fix a roof, dead easy. But he, I mean, he really should fix the roof, shouldn't he? I mean, he's a carpenter. Come on, Joseph, fix your roof, mate. You've got visitors coming. The Magi are coming with their age-inappropriate but gender-neutral gifts. <laughs> hey, head down there, click on the link, subscribe to the Renaissance Woman, and I'll tell you all about the three wise men next time. Fix the roof, Joseph. Ah, uh, Joseph. A feast day is about to arrive. I begin with this quote from John Chrysostom simply to highlight the way in which theologically Christmas represents more than simply a birthday celebration for the early church. And we're going to go through over the
the next uh, few minutes and look at a series of quotations in conjunction with some images and think about what are we invited to see when considering a nativity scene? Whether it is uh, one we might have in our house, a piece of artwork we might see, like this one with the angel. No? Yeah. yeah. With the angel falling through the roof. The good thing is now we know why the roof has a hole in it, which they didn't before. The angel got too excited. But I want to turn to this next nativity shot. What stands out to you, anyone? Yeah, it's not the most nurturing approach to caring for a newborn infant, is it? Anything else? Yeah. All right, so you still have that iconography of the ox and the donkey. And they still don't have bodies. They still don't have bodies. They don't have bodies, just their heads. I mean, in theory, they have bodies. We are to assume that they have bodies, and they're not just floating animal heads. If that's the case, then I've been studying theology wrong. So, is that a priest at the bottom right, or a religious person? Excellent. Excellent. That is probably, so this is by uh, Botticelli. So it's a Renaissance painting. It is probably representing a particular historic figure, perhaps St. Francis, who is often associated with the uh, birth because he promoted, in the Middle Ages, in the 13th century, he promoted a return to veneration of the infant Christ, kind of a rehumanizing of Jesus in the Middle Ages. And he is often depicted as venerating the baby Christ in these pictures. And there's another one who's obviously not Joseph or Mary, they must be the two at the left. I'm not sure. That's probably Mary and Joseph. I think this is Mary and Joseph. Yeah. This might be Claire, which would be Francis's sister. Now, to be clear, all of my statements there are completely pulled out of my ear. Yeah. Next time I will bring a painting for everyone. I will, I have learned. They all have halos, right, or nimbuses, depending on uh, which period we're talking about. So yeah, this, uh, this holiness of the scene represented by the figures in it. Uh, I don't know why you put a halo on an infant, they can barely lift their heads, but. You still have the, the representation of like a wooden barn, but also there is a cave. So yeah. Yes. You get a bit of both in there. Excellent. So this, I said, is by Botticelli, and I chose it personally. What stood out for me is that first thing we named about how they're all sort of standing back from Jesus. They're venerating him. They are worshiping him, but they're not going to get real close because we don't know what this magic baby is going to do if you touch him, right? So I turn you to this quote the next quote from Cyril of Alexandria. 
The evangelist, and here he means the gospel writer of Luke, says that Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph to show that the conception had taken place only upon her engagement and that the birth of the Emmanuel was miraculous and not in accordance with the laws of nature. For the virgin did not bear from the emission of man's seed, meaning she didn't have sperm and that's not how she conceived the baby Jesus. Uh, And why was this so? Okay, Hannah made this great point about no one likes a woman who's had sex. Uh, Cyril's going to make a slightly different point about the importance of the virgin birth. Christ, who is the first fruit of all, the second Adam according to the scriptures, was born of the Spirit that he might transmit the grace to us also. For we too were intended no longer to bear the name of sons of men, but rather of God. We have obtained the new birth of the Spirit in Christ first, that he might be firstborn of all, as Paul declares. It seems what? Well, you know, when you're translating high Greek into modern English, it's going to get contorted. So, two themes I want to highlight here that are going to stay with us. Mystery and miracle. Mystery and miracle. In one sense, the inability to approach the infant Christ is less about therberizing the baby and not thinking, well, he's crying, but we need to let him cry it out, even though he's on a cold stone floor. And it's more theologically representative of our inability to approach what is actually going on here. Our minds might not be able fully to grasp it. And that mystery is a miracle that is about our salvation. When Cyril speaks here, about Christ being the first fruit, the second Adam, born of the Spirit, transmitting grace to us. What he's talking about is a common early Christian way of looking at salvation, which says, yes, we need our sins forgiven, and yes, we want to go to heaven, but Christian salvation and what's happening with Jesus is not just about getting your slate wiped clean so that you can get your ticket to the good life after this one. But that Christ, as a mystery, as a miracle, as this union of divinity and humanity, represents a new way of being human. And so... The whole Mary being a virgin thing here for Cyril is not just about, oh look, it's a miraculous birth, isn't that great? But that it's a new form of being human. Because, as he says, Christ is the second Adam. This comes from 1 Corinthians, where Paul discusses that we had a first Adam, 
and we all fell. And then we need a second Adam through which we can all be lifted up. And the idea being that when Adam fell, when Adam ate that fruit and disobeyed God, he wasn't just smacked on the hand and told he was naughty. Nor was it that simply that he was guilty and we're all guilty. Though, we can talk about that too. But it's that Adam ceased to be what he was created to be. And human nature itself, human nature itself, was changed. And not necessarily in a good way. And so the idea we get from Cyril here is that this unique, mysterious, miraculous birth that is leaving people in awe is not simply about, oh look, now God knows what it's like to be human. But oh look, now we too can know what it's like to be truly human. I want to stick, no I don't, I'm moving to another slide, so let me pause while we still have this slide and all the stuff I've thrown at you to see if there are any questions or comments. Also, Mike, what time do we go to? We've got another hour. Oh, perfect. Excellent. Well, there will be time, I think, for questions at the end, so feel free to just let things mull. This, I believe, is from Fra Angelico. And what I want to do with this one, is, and the one after it, is move from thinking about the incarnation in general, move from thinking about the birth in general, to t several particular themes or images in a nativity. One, the swaddling clothes which as someone whose wife is expecting a baby any time now, I now know what that is. I want to talk a bit about the ox and the donkey. And I want to talk a bit about the birth taking place in Bethlehem. All within this larger context of the mystery and the miracle of a new humanity. So, Ambrose of Milan writing near the end of the 4th century, talks about how the scene is described in Luke, and he says, You see that he is in swaddling clothes. You do not see that he is in heaven. You hear cries of an infant, but you do not hear the lowing of an ox recognizing its master. For the ox knows his owner, and the donkey his master's crib, a reference to Isaiah 1.3. Several things here, the most important of which is that this quotation can be a transition from us, from us, for us, from the previous one to future ones we're going to discuss about the swaddling clothes. Because the swaddling clothes and the ox and the ass here are used primarily to point to the divinity of Jesus. When you see Christ, 
We see him bound in the strips of cloth that swaddled him. We don't see the fact that he is still in heaven as well. This is what we might call traditional Trinitarian doctrine. The idea that in the incarnation, Christ becomes human but does not cease to be at the same time God. So that when we encounter the tiny infant, there might be some reason to stand back. Because we are also encountering the power of God who hasn't stopped being God but is still in heaven even as he is on earth. And the ox and the donkey here are doing exactly what Hannah Gatsby said, not wondering if they have bodies, but recognizing who it is that's lying in the manger. So the idea here is that the incarnation, even in swaddling clothes, even especially in the frail body of a newborn, somehow it is a place where we encounter the mystery of God. And that that mystery is not simply for you and I, but somehow it is a miracle for all of the world, all of created nature as well. But let's move to the bottom one here. This gets a bit contorted. And I love it. Right? So with the previous one from Ambrose, we have... Oh, look, we see him as a child, but he's also in heaven. And we hear the baby cry, but we also need to hear the lowing of the oxes who recognize who that is. This highlights what exactly is the purpose of putting him in a manger. And I don't mean the purpose in the sense of, well, baby's got to sleep. I mean theological purpose. Because the assumption by early Christian writers is that every single thing that you read in scripture is going to have some excess meaning, right? It's going to mean what it says, but it's also going to point to deeper meanings as well. And so, what is a manger? It's a trough, yeah. It's a feeding trough for animals. So, in the picture... I like to imagine that the ox and the donkey are not just saying, oh, this is amazing, this is, this is the Lord of all who created us. But they're also saying, dude, can you get out of my food? <laughs> We're kind of hungry. Well, theologians can play with anything, so we can make some theological meat out of that. He found humanity reduced to the level of beasts. Therefore, he is placed like feed in a manger that we, having left behind our carnal desires, might rise up to the degree of intelligence which befits human nature. Whereas we were brutish in soul, by now approaching the manger, yes, his table, 
We find no longer feed, but the bread from heaven, not the bread from heaving, I apologize, which is the body of life. So, two important things going on here, I think. One is, where else could God who came to save us be born but in an animal stall? Why? Because humanity had fallen so far from what we were originally intended to be that we were essentially beasts. We are essentially beasts. But, the second thing is, why put in the manger amongst the beasts? So that he might be food. Hannah Gatsby joked that they recognized that this little kebab was something special. And I'm pretty sure that the kebab just means a little cute small thing. But it's also food. I mean, I, I, I don't think she meant the food pun. But the idea is that if Jesus is born into a manger, that must point to... Anyone got it? You're Episcopalians, come on. Eucharist, excellent, I'm not disappointed. So again, what we see in a nativity, when we look at putting the baby Jesus in that manger, is a sacramental reminder that this new humanity, right, that we're called into, is fed through Christ's own self. Let's turn to some Rublev. One of my favorites. We saw this in the Gatsby video. What stands out to you about this one? This is a focus uh, detail shot. Yeah, Alice. We've, also, we've got again like the, the stone blocks. Yeah, yeah. Is uh, the manger is and this one is made stone again. Yeah, and it's in a cave, right? Which is symbolic of a tomb. Yeah. I'm oh, sorry. Yes. Can I? <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. So, I'm going to go ahead and go on to the next quote because you just spoiled it. Yeah. There is, but I can't remember what it is. It's a standard depiction, um, especially within Eastern icons. But I can't remember what it is. Unless it's an alternative to purple as sort of a royalness. 
Uh, but I, I do not know. So the spoiler one at the top of the back page, or on the back of the page, from Gregory of Nazianzen, no, sorry, it should be Gregory of Nazianzus, we have the meaning of the swaddles. He was wrapped in swaddling bands, but at the resurrection, he released the swaddling bands of the grave. So on the one hand, we have this idea that these represent his bands, right? The way he would be wrapped. And in his resurrection, obviously we know the... the um, the clothes that he was wrapped in were left lying in the manger. Not in the manger, in the tomb. See what I did there? Um, but they're also our bands. Because one of the things that most early Christians affirmed happened in the fall is not primarily that we were guilty, though we were, not just that we made God mad, but that we fell into a way of being that was corruptible. And I don't mean primarily moral corruption, though it includes that. But I mean physical corruption. The fact that we age and decay and die is for most early Christians a key component of our condition after the fall and of what we need salvation from. So when I speak of corruption in a theological sense like this, I like to invite you to imagine spinach in the fridge seven months after you bought it. Exactly. That's what we are. Right? Some of us are more aware of it than others. And part of what Gregory of Nazianzus is getting at here is that in this connection between Christ's birth and his death, which, as Hannah Gatsby said, too soon, too soon, give the guy a minute. But it's not just pointing to what he will experience, but it's pointing to what he will do for us. And I don't mean simply that he will die for us, but more importantly, that he overcomes death so that we too might share in the resurrection. So that we too might not have to be defeated ultimately by death. So when we see Gregory of Nazianzus say, he was wrapped in swaddling bonds, but at the resurrection he released the swaddling bands of the grave, it does not say he released his swaddling bands of the grave. But it's that he released all of them. We might not be experiencing the fruits of it just yet. But there's hope for something more. One more with this rublev. 
And this takes us back to the swaddling clothes, to um, the manger, and to the overall context of a barn or a cave. You would house animals in either in general. Bede, you may know as the venerable Bede. I think he's the just all right Bede, but that's me. (laughs) Bede says, It should be noted that the sign given of the Savior's birth is not a child enfolded in Tyrian purple. It means purple from the city of Tyre, where you would get all the best purple, and which would cost you a fortune, and only really rich or imperial folks could have it. But, the sign was, one wrapped in rough pieces of cloth. He is not to be found in an ornate golden bed, but in a manger. The meaning of this is that he did not merely take upon himself our lowly mortality, but for our sake took upon himself the clothing of the poor. You'll notice in a bracket there it says condition of the poor, question mark. That was a note for myself when I was copying this down to double check the translation to see if it might also mean condition of the poor. And I never did that, nor that I erase it. So have fun with that. (laughs) This idea of the humbleness, the humility of swaddling clothes. And let me tell you, from what I've seen registering for some, they're not humble anymore. But at the time, just random bands of cloth that you could use, that anyone could use. Of a manger, not a crib, not a nursery, not just a food trough for a very confused ox and donkey. If we find ourselves unable to really jive with other texts we have read today, right? Maybe the whole new humanity thing seems a bit much. Maybe the whole, um, the ox and the donkey are recognizing their master, the Lord, is a bit much. Maybe uh, the breaking down of of the bands that hold us in the grave is a bit much. There's something here that I think has remained powerful for Christians contemplating the nativity for centuries. Namely, that no matter how high or low we want to make Christ, you know, is he the eternal God come in human form? Or is he a prophet or someone who reveals to us the will of God, but none of that other Nonsense? I don't know. There is something about the humble context in which we are invited to find him that will always speak to Christians of various stripes. And that's going to lead us to my final quote for today. Bethlehem. You might be guessing that this is not Bethlehem at the time of Christ. There are many things to suggest this, not least of which that it's a photograph, but um, this is a modern day image of Bethlehem as it exists in Palestine, 
in what many would call an apartheid situation where those who live in Palestine, both Christian and Muslim, are living in very difficult situations of deprivation. Where the ability to move freely is denied, where access to supplies that are needed is strictly controlled and often denied, and because of that, it is a context of a decent amount of oppression. Now, I do not presume to know what everyone in this room thinks about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, right? I can imagine many people saying, well, yes, it's unfortunate, but it's necessary for X, Y, and Z reason. Fine. Let us at least live with awareness of the reality of the difficult situations within which Palestinians and Bethlehemians live. As we hear this from the Just All Right bead. I do an introduction and just say Christ is always born in Bethlehem and then Bede fills that out and says, as often as any one of those who hear him taking the flower of his word make for themselves a house of eternal bread. Bethlehem means house of bread. Daily in the virginal womb, that is, in the souls of the faithful, is he conceived by faith and brought forth by baptism. Ultimately, and this is as cheesy as I ever get. Well, no, that's not true. But it's as cheesy as I'm going to get now. Ultimately, the point of contemplating the nativity is not simply to learn something about what happened long ago. It is so that we can give birth to Christ in our own lives. So, we taking the flower that is God's word, whether we mean scripture, whether we mean the Son of God, we are taking that wisdom into us. Making for ourselves a house of eternal bread. Making ourselves a home for Christ so that we are Bethlehem. After all, Christ is the bread of life. Daily in the virginal womb that is the souls of the faithful, in our minds, in our hearts, those are the virgin womb of Mary. Where we can hold that. And where we can give life to what Christ would have us be. So, to conclude, here's what I got from these pictures, from these early texts. Here's what it makes me think about what it means to worship the Christ child. What it means to contemplate the nativity. 
We are called to a new humanity, to a new way of being human, in solidarity with those on the margins. In this, we are nurtured by the sacraments, and through it, we are empowered to challenge the forces of death to loose those bonds. And maybe, just maybe, we'll be able to fix the roof as well. That's all I got. I'd be happy to answer whatever questions y'all might have. Yeah. That's you. Yeah. I had a question about it. So the last I think over, so over here, you have uh, the midwives that are watching Jesus. And so I think that's what she's looking. Either that, or she's tired. But that's the best I got. Others? Yeah. Especially it is. Um, sometimes it seems that it's just the recognition that uh, you stored animals in caves as well as in wood and shelters. Uh, but it's a very small symbolic leap for early Christian, well, for Christian artists to go from any cave to being uh, a tomb, right? Else? Exactly. And, you know, housing animals, you would have stuck them in caves, which there are a lot of caves mm -hmm. in Palestine, um, in that, that area of the, of the world. And so you would stick them there. And so, you know, you don't want to use wood for animals. So that's perhaps where we get these caves in the early uh, context. I, th I think that's exactly right. And I think that... Um, the same as the case for why you use caves for tombs, right? So it's when we talk about that symbolism is so close. And, and, and I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect that you're going to get a lot more wooden mangers and uh, wooden barns and stuff in the West, uh, where you are having more forests and that's how they do things. Whereas if you go to a lot of the Orthodox churches, which are going to be closer to the Mediterranean context of... Um, of Palestine, they're going to be like, why would you do a wood? That seems weird. Yeah, I've heard it's uh, Francis of Assisi's emphasis on the Nativity scene, and Francis puts together a Nativity scene and he puts an Italian barn on it. Yeah. Barn. yeah. You'll notice our new set has a, has a carved 
Oh, the irony. Yes, it's you. My eyes cross, so I won't look at you when I call on you. It's weird. Yes, it's you. <laughs> Yeah. That long time ago, at that time, when they took us to where he was born, they had put a structure over it. Mm -hmm. You would walk through the door, and then they could show you the place that this is where he was born. Yeah. It's, it's still relatively small. This would be... Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I went there in about 2005, I think. You've been there more recently. We'll get you to... I was uh, I, I went to Bethlehem a year and a half ago. I, not Beth, Bethlehem, uh, Jerusalem a year and a half ago, and for some reason we weren't able to go to Bethlehem. I was very sad. So I'm glad that Mike can verify that I didn't get the wrong pick. Other questions? Well, we are at a time of ending, and um, I will just leave you with this small blessing. I hope that these weeks of Advent can be times of reflection for you, but also of action, where you find ways to live into the new humanity that Christ invites us all to. Uh, being nurtured by the Eucharist, uh, being aware of those on the margins whom Christ identified with from the very moment of his birth, uh, and finding ways to know that the powers of death in this world aren't going to have the final say. Thank you all. experts in residence. Uh, they're going to be talking about the history of Christmas carols and Christmas music. Uh, some of it is very joyous and some of it is um, tragic and uh, we're going to get into some of the history and depth of that. So please come back and join us next week at 9.15 for the adult one. Thanks again to Adam. Thank you. Is it okay? Yeah, it was great.